So we're in Romans 8 this morning. We've been working our way through Romans, and this section in, at the end of chapter 8 in Romans is primarily about suffering and what our, more specifically, hope in suffering. And we, last week I gave you two, I showed you two hopes we have when hardship befalls us, okay? Uh, the first one was our future glorification with Christ will outshine the darkness of any suffering in this life. No one will say at the end, none of that was worth it. And Paul uses the metaphor of childbirth to kind of get that idea across. It's a beautiful, powerful picture. And the other one, the second was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, strengthens us in our weakness, interceding for us in our place. So we have a future hope and we have a present hope that the Spirit strengthens us in our weakness, prays for us when we don't know what to pray. He prays as if he were us in our place to God on our behalf. It's a beautiful thing. So we have future hope and we have present hope and suffering. And so here at the end of chapter 8, we're going to look at this morning, we see a third reason, which is not news to you now because Chris Hubbard gave it away. But God sovereignly guarantees the good results of our suffering. In other words, our suffering is not for nothing. And the guarantee of that is not, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his choice, his choosing. All right? So let's look at verses 28 to 30 first. We'll work our way through that, and then we'll finish, finish it out at the end here. It says, this is Romans 8, 28 to 30. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so let's just start with verse 28, which says, I'll just repeat it. So you can focus on it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Probably one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible. It's on every Christian t-shirt, bumper sticker, fridge magnet. Um, from going up, Maybe that and John 3.16, probably the two most famous verses. But there's a lot here, so don't let your familiarity kind of make it blurry to your your mind okay we're going to work just break it down so he says the words for those who love god that is by the way not a qualification for things working together for good it's an identification of who things work together for the for the good for pardon my bunch of prepositions he's the the people that god chooses the chosen people god's people are the people that love god okay it's an identification of who those people are. It's the basic thing that identifies a Christian. You love God. Okay? He's not saying when you love God really well, then he will respond by making things work together for your good. Really important you see that. It's not a condition on things working together. It is who we are as people. He's identifying the people of God as those who love God. It's an identifier, not a qualifier of God's sovereign goodness. So what things work together for our good? What are the things 
that he's talking about that he pulls together and makes them good for you? Well, it's all the things. This is really important. The word all. I looked it up. It means all. All the stuff. Every single one of the things. This is also very important. We like to think that some things are so bad, they're exceptions to the all. But there are, there's nothing outside of all things. It's all things. That's what the word all means. There's nothing that's so bad or so rotten or so destructive that happens to you in your life, inside you or outside you. We talked about that last week. None of that is an exception to this. All things will be worked together for your good. My fingers are dry, so paper is challenging for me. All right. So it's not just the things that you determine are good come from God. But God directs all things together for your good. Whether you call it good or call it bad, it's going to ultimately be good. Doesn't that blow your mind? Think about all the bad things in your life. Not too long, it's depressing, I know. But God is so great and so sovereign that every single one of those things he will transform into being good for you. That's how great God is. So who is doing the working? All right, you can just look at the sentence. Who's doing, is it you or is it God? Well, it's God. God is doing the working together. It's not the recipient of the good things. It's God that does the good things. It's not that all things work together for those that can orchestrate a good result by wisdom, stubbornness, or even faithfulness. No, God orchestrates every circumstance surrounding your life to come together for your good and his glory. You are not the mastermind of your blessings. It is not up to you. We get under this thing when bad things start to happen, difficult things, hardships, pain, suffering, and we start to say, well, I, I need to learn this lesson. Because if I learn this lesson, the suffering will end. Is that who you really think God is? That he's just trying to teach you some lesson like Aesop's fables? Some good principle, teach you some wisdom? That is not what God's doing. It's not up to you and your response. He is working good character, the very character of Christ into you. It's more than just learning a lesson. It's God is shaping you and conforming you to Jesus. And we'll see that in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. There is one qualifier. And that is the phrase working together. What is the qualifier for working together for good? Well, the answer to that is for those who are called according to his purpose. You have to be chosen and called by God for his purpose. Those he calls and chooses are the ones who he works all things together for the good of. That is the one qualifier. Still, it is not up to you. It is not your choosing that makes it so that everything works out for the good. It is God going, I want you on my team. We're on the winning team. We win. You're on my team. I'm choosing you for myself. And because of that, result of that is everything works together for your good you're still being carried along by God. 
We tend to browse the circumstances of our lives, picking each one up, inspecting it, and then declaring it good or bad, depending on our own judgment, don't we? I want to look for a minute at Eve, who gets a bad rap, along with her passive husband, Adam. I want to read something here. I want to show you this because I think it's at the heart of the human condition. Or it's one of the things at the heart of the human condition that we must fight when we read these verses. Okay, so he says, this is Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He just says God lied to you. Verse 5 and 6 is the key here I want you to see. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What did she do? What did this tree give them? It gave them the ability, the wisdom to judge what is good and what is evil. What's wrong with that? Shouldn't you be able to say that's good and that's evil? No! It's God who says that. It is God who determines what is good and what is evil. It is our job to simply agree with whatever he says. Right? You don't have the authority to judge what is good and what is evil. You only have the authority to agree with God. And what Eve did, God said, that tree is bad. Satan said it's good. And it says she looked at the tree and suddenly it looked good to her and it would look desirable and it was good to eat when God had said it's bad. And she said, no, it's not bad. He lied to me. It's good. I say it's good, even though he says it's bad. Give me that apple. And she ate of it and gave it to her husband. So when God says, I will work everything together for your good, the question is, will you agree with him or not? It doesn't mean, by the way, just so I'm clear, that everything that happens to you is good. <clears throat> That's like a weird prosperity gospel thing that is too far, all right? Where you just live in denial, where you just kind of go on this tragedy is happening in my life, but it's good, it's fine. And people say, how are you doing, sister? And you say, in, you know, in faith I'm good. Why are you crying? Because it's just so good. <laughs> no, it's bad. But God will work it together for my good. And there will come a day, because that's true, when I will thank him for this. I can't imagine feeling that way. I'm going to be honest. I can't imagine feeling that way about this. Because this is so bad. But I trust God because I will not make Eve's mistake. 
And I will say what he says will be good is going to be good, even if I don't see how, even if Satan is telling me this is bad and it will always be bad. I will agree with God because I do not have authority over whether things are good or bad. I only can agree with him. That's Paul's point. He says all things will be worked together by him sovereignly to be for your good and his glory. Then look at verses 29 and 30, which we read already, but I want to repeat it so you can see it. It's a, it's a long word salad, all right? It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This has often been referred to as the golden chain. It's like a logical chain if you break it down i put it in the notes i put it graphically and make it easier to see so let's look at each one of these words in the chain okay and you're going to see how god's choosing of you leads to hope and how it connects in with this idea of suffering okay so the first word here is for new Boy, this, every single one of these words has been fought over, by the way. So I'm just telling you what I think about it. <laughs> All right. For new, this word is used in the New Testament in two ways. One, to mean an intellectual knowledge beforehand. Or two, entering into a loving relationship beforehand, knowing in a biblical sense. Here in this verse, it seems very clear to me that Paul is not talking about God knowing some information about us, but that he actually knew us. God, before the foundations of the earth were laid, entered into a loving relationship with you. He, before you existed, the only problem with Chris's wonderful metaphor about being chosen before, before the team, imagine the, the captain choosing players before they were ever born, before they ever existed, saying, one day... Heather Cotton is going to be born, and she's going to be great for my team. Or no, she's going to be the worst player ever, but I'm going to choose her for my team anyway. That's really how it goes. I will make her the best player ever. It's crazy. God is not a great team captain because he chooses the worst players before anyone's ever seen them play to be on his team. He foreknew. He entered into a loving relationship with you before you were e before there was light. Before there was a planet or stars or anything else, he said, "I know Ben Cotton. I know him like a friend." That's amazing. It's comforting, isn't it? This loving relationship leads to his predestination of us, or foreordainment, if I could use that word. Foreordained, decided beforehand. God determined beforehand, based on his love for us, that he would make sure that we would be like Jesus. He chose this because he loves us, of course, but even more so, he did it to glorify Jesus himself. That's what he says. He loves you. And he died for you and chose you because he 
loves you, yes, but there's another thing going on here, which is Jesus himself is being glorified and honored for who he is. You are the reward of his suffering, Paul says. What in the world? This, I mean, some reward. (laughs) Quite a trophy, I feel like I am. This is what God thinks of you. It's what God thinks of who he's making you into, is that you are going to be and have been declared to be already so wondrous and beautiful and glorious that you are an apt and appropriate reward for Jesus himself for what he suffered and died and who he is. That's crazy us scrubby little humans are his reward. And the guarantee of that is in God's hand. God decided beforehand that that is what he would do with you. This is long before you had the ability to do anything, to be impressive, or to kind of coerce him into doing this for you. So then he says the word, he uses the word called. Those that he knew, he then foreordained to be like Jesus. He then calls or summons. That's a good translation of that word, summons. It's like getting the invitation. Somebody comes to your door, says, there's a party. You have to go. Let's go to the party. Here's your invitation. And calls you in. Though he chose you first, you must choose him in return. Grammatically, this says that all those that were predestined were then called. There's no room here for being predestined but not called. Why would God predestine you unless it's not strong enough somehow for his predestining to work? He predestines you and then he calls you. There is a moment in time where he decides to make that decision real. Now, I don't believe that if you're called, you say no. That's my opinion. There's many others that have that opinion. But to see God, to see him, and to see his love for you, to know how much, and to see that expressed in Jesus, to have the faith to see him and say, he's real, he loves me, he has a, before I knew him, he knew me and loved me and chose me, to see that is to love him in return. That's what I think. You can argue about it over lunch. What about the word justified? We've talked about this a lot already in Romans, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but this is the legal declaration from God that your sin is paid for in full. It doesn't mean that you've never sinned. Some people say, you know, an easy way to remember what justification means is, or justified means just as if I've never sinned. That's completely wrong. <laughs> it is not as if you've never sinned. It is as if you really sinned and just didn't pay for it. Two different things. You, if, if I slap you in the face right now, like actually physically did that, I could apologize to you, you could forgive me, we could say, let bygones be God bygones, I forgive you, I'm so sorry, everything's fine, God forgives me, everything's clear. A billion years into the future, it will still be true that one day I slapped you in the face. But there will be no penalty, no guilt, and no shame. 
it will become a testimony of God's goodness to me and his goodness to you. That's the difference. You have been justified. Okay, so he foreknew you. He knew you beforehand, entered into loving relationship with you. And so he said, I'm going to make sure that you become like Jesus. And then he said, and then I'm going to, I'm going to call you in. There's going to be a moment where I call you and say, okay, now's the time, Cotton. Time to get started. And I'm going to say yes. And then he's going to declare me justified. Boom. Your sin doesn't count against you. It counts against Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. That's usually where the gospel presentation stops. But there's more. <laughs> what about this word glorified? This is my favorite part of this verse. The verb here is in the aorist tense, which means that it is disconnected from time. It's usually translated into English in the past tense, but here it takes on a deeper meaning. We know that Paul is talking about our future glorification at the return of Christ. You can know that by the context. We've talked about that a lot. He's talking about one day you will be glorified, completely like leveled up in every single way, perfected where your character matches the character of Christ. But he says it not, and then you will be glorified. He says you have been glorified. Past tense. What? It is as good as done. Some people call it the prophetic past tense. He says it like it's done and finished and completed and has been. There's nothing else to do, yet it's something that we know happens in the future. What's he getting at? What he's getting at is when God decides something, it just is. You don't have the authority to say it's not true because you're not God goes right back to Eve. It's either what God says or what you say, and your judgment or God's word. When God decides, it just is. Have you ever thought of this? I know this is a little philosophical. What does it mean when we ask God to do something? What does it mean when the scripture says God does something? God has no physical form. He's not, he doesn't get up and walk or pick up things and do things and use tools. What does he do? When God does something, he just speaks. And speaking is the same as thinking. It's just when God decides, it is. He's not like us. I can't do that. It would be pretty cool. Actually, not pretty cool, because there's a lot of things I think and a lot of things I decide that are really stupid that I never do because I realize at some point that was a dumb idea. I'm not doing that. So I think it would be really bad if I could just think things and it would happen. There'd be a lot of dead people on the motorway. Maybe just disabled cars. They would swerve out of my way and break down. I wouldn't kill everybody, right? I'm not that bad of a person. You see, but God, when he just decides he is, so when he says you will be glorified, you, he, it's as good as done. And when we talk about it, it's appropriate to talk about it in the past tense. That's what Abraham did when he saw what was far off as if it was close. That was his faith. God promised him something, and he so believed God that it was as if it was present right now. That's the essence of what faith is. And this is how Paul talks about your glorification. 
But I don't, we have to be careful here too because it doesn't mean there's not a present reality, okay? It doesn't mean that we're, we're not sitting around in our evil state twiddling our thumbs waiting to die or waiting for Jesus to come back, whichever comes first. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You are being transformed right now. It's good that our hope is in the return of Jesus. Our hope is in eternity. That's good and that's right. Yet at the same time, that's happening right now. You are being transformed right now. And again, you may say, well, I, don't, I feel like I'm getting worse. <laughs> God says you're not. And you don't have the authority to stand as judge over your own sanctification and say I'm not getting as, this isn't moving as fast as I think it should. All right, let's finish out the section here with this glorious conclusion. Romans 8, 31 to 39 says, what then shall we say to these things? So he's just saying, okay, in light of all that, what do we do? What do we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We talked last week about the persecution that was coming right after he wrote this, where this actually happened. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the result of the golden chain that we just looked at. There is not one thing that will separate you from him. No matter how bad it is, no matter how evil it seems to be, no matter how devastating it is to the world around you, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ. The phrase more than conquerors is a rare phrase. It's kind of awkwardly translated here. It actually goes back to the Geneva Bible. I found this is a weird nerd fact for you. It just means winning by a lot. It doesn't mean that you conquer and then you get more than conquering. It's just conquering a lot. Okay? It's like extra conquering. Winning by a long shot. No contest. No, it, you, you were in a race. And you won by so much, you were lapping your competitors over and over again like it was nothing. Winning. The winning team, as Hubbard put it this morning. 
God decided that he would do with you what he would do with you before there was light. Not one event of your life has happened out from under his sovereign hand. Not one event. Nothing in your life exists outside of this golden chain. It is all part of God conforming you to the image of his son, honoring Christ through you, ensuring that you will finish your race and cross the finish line fully. All this means that your hardship and suffering is not random or meaningless. The only thing worse than suffering is suffering under the belief that it means nothing, that it's for nothing and is producing nothing. There is no hope in that. Just random, evil, death, calamity, hardship. It means nothing. It's just nature running its course. And my life is like a pinball in the machine bouncing around. And whatever bumper I hit is just the bumper I hit. And that's just life, man. Life is hard. Suck it up. Like that's what the world has. It's all they have. But what God says is every single one of the things in your life that is crushing you right now, he will work together for your good. It is not meaningless. It is making you more like Jesus. Not just teaching you some Sunday school lesson so you can learn a new fact or gain a little wisdom. We get those things. But the real glory in it is that you are being shaped to be like Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is perfect. He is the perfect image of the Father. He is glorious and majestic. He has never had a sinful thought in his entire life. That is who he's making you into. And sometimes that path takes you through terrible pain. But what God says is, I'm making it good. Nothing, none of it will separate you from me. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us or preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction. If you read about Paul's life, he is, none of it was light or particularly momentary. The guy was beaten, scourged like Jesus multiple times, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes. Hated, by, hated and reviled by just about everybody that was not a Christian by the end of his life. And then he wrote Romans, encouraged everyone about persecution, and then it had his head removed. But he looks at all that and says it's light and momentary. Why? Because he compares it to the eternal weight of glory that it is preparing him for. And he says, well, this is eternally heavy. And my affliction on the scale, like the old-timey scale, if you put them on the scale, it makes my affliction seem light and airy and just a vapor because the weight of glory God is preparing from that affliction is so great, it cannot even be compared. Nothing you've been through or will go through will be wasted. That is a promise. Not one tear, not one time 
putting your fist through a wall out of frustration. Not one session of sobbing and complaining to God. Not one affliction is going to be wasted. That doesn't mean I understand why any of it's happening. (laughs) I don't. But I know what it will produce. That we know. So I'd like to pray, similar to last week, as we leave this topic of suffering for more controversial topics in chapter 9. I want to pray for intimacy with God, which is what this is all about. I was thinking as we were singing that song about revival this morning. You know, I'd have to, I need to think about it some more, but I'm pretty sure as I think about it, there's not one, in every place in the world that is experienced, where the church is experiencing a long-term revival, every one of those places is a really hard place to live for Christians. And so we sing about revival. God, bring us, stir me up, wake me up. And I wonder if the only way to have that kind of long-term lasting revival is to be uncomfortable. Sometimes I don't know what we pray for if we know what we're praying for. And so that's one of the reasons why I think this topic is prophetic for us. It's not only a comfort for those of you who are going through hard things, but it is also a word for the church to remind us that this is, it is not easy to be a Christian in the world. And when it's easy, you should be suspicious. When it feels easy and, and friction-free to move about your life and be a real Christian, and it feels easy, you should not trust that feeling. Be suspicious about what you're in and how much compromise and comfort you love and how you mistake comfort with the presence of God and the blessing of God, because it is not always true. And so I want to pray and ask God to to free us up from this, this false idea that blessing equals comfort. Faithfulness to God produces comfort. And instead that we would say, God, whatever it takes, if you can pray this prayer, it's a dangerous one, God, whatever it takes, however tightly I need to hug my cross, produce the character of Christ in me. I don't want to wait till I'm dead. I want the gap between where my character is and where Jesus' is to be as small as possible by the time I cross the line. I don't want to wait till then and just twiddle my thumbs. So can we stand up together and ask God for that? Once again, I want to encourage you, just like last week, if you're suffering under some affliction right now, whether it be circumstantial or internal, um, one of the th- ways Scripture gives us to, to respond to that is worship. So we're going to worship again and sing another song in just a minute. And you, you're, you don't have to fake joy.
just worship God and joy will come out. And the peace will come. But I want to I pray for us first. So God, I ask you right now, God, for me and for this house, God, that you would bring lasting, true revival, that you would stir us up in the Spirit. God, beginning with a willingness to be uncomfortable, even to be afflicted. God, I don't want affliction, but I do want revival. And so God, whatever it takes, whatever in me needs to die and fall away, God, would you train my flesh to submit to you? God, we repent of taking a the the false authority from Eve and Adam and taking it in our own hands. God, we just want to agree with you about what you say about our life. There are good things that happen to us and there are bad things that happen to us, but you will work all of it together for good. So God, help us to agree with Job who said, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. So if we feel run through by the sword and look down and see your hand on the sword, even then we will trust you. God, this can only happen by the Spirit. So God, I ask you that these words that you spoke through the Apostle Paul to the Roman church, God, that you would take these words and place them in our hearts and that there would be life and hope that none of this, none of this hardship in life is for nothing. It all means something, and it is working for our good. And we trust you, and we trust your sovereignty over it. We trust your will, your choosing, and we are grateful for it, God. So Holy Spirit, would you draw near to us right now? God, I ask that every single one of us would experience your loving presence right now. Your nearness. You are not far away. You are with us right now. So God, I ask you as we sing this song to you that you would visit each one of us with your comfort and your hope and your courage and strength in the name of